Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Jonathan Farrow there, speaking with Larry Kudlow, Director of the National Economic Council, ending it with a nice little... Uh, good luck, I suppose, to the incoming administration and people who will be in similar posts. And Paul, really, obviously, what we might have expected, Larry, downplaying the weak parts of this report and playing up the stronger parts of this report. And no one is doubting that there are some, you know, st- strength points yep. to, to look at here. Yeah, exactly right. And I think the, uh, you know, we heard from, from Larry Kudlow there, uh, you know, acknowledging that the, you know, this, this wave of coronavirus is impacting the economy, but trying to find, uh, you know, some areas of uh, strengthening the economy, whether it's housing, uh, whether it's consumer spending, it looks like the consumer is going to be spending here this holiday season here. But, you know, when you take a look at the labor market here, it remains very, very challenging. And I think a lot of the concerns from uh, economists is, you know, how much of this is, you know, a little bit more on the permanent side uh, versus temporary in terms of the joblessness. Well, let's ask somebody else who we haven't spoken to in a while and who we're yes. delighted to have back. Carl Riccadonna joins us. What a lovely present for the end of the year. <laughs> Carl is a chief US economist, of course, for Bloomberg Economics. And Carl, it is fantastic to have you back. Although I have to wonder what you're thinking coming back in this kind of environment with a job market that is very, very different from just a few months ago. Absolutely. Uh, good morning to you both. And thanks for having me back on. Uh, you know, I have to draw some uh, real distinctions uh, with uh, what uh, Larry Kudlow uh, was suggesting, uh, saying that uh, in the interview he said that uh, the the jobs number was a wee bit below uh, what uh, was expected. Uh, 200,000 is a pretty big number. So the old uh, expression, uh, close enough for government work, I guess applies to the NEC chair. Uh, And and also he said, uh, you know, this is a good report for the holiday season and whatnot. Uh, the uh, The only person who likes this for the holiday season is the Grinch. I mean, we saw a very sharp decline in uh, retail hiring. That's such an important job engine at this time of year. And that is just uh, endemic of or emblematic of, you know, the type of uh, heartbreaking we're seeing in the economy right now. The service sector absolutely clobbered uh, in today's report, uh, a big downshift. Uh, We had this uh, reopening boom over the last uh, several months. Uh, and as we look at the details of this report, we can see that basically came to an end uh, in today's data. And unfortunately, uh, the November jobs report was tallied much the recent surge in case counts and, and uh, lockdown measures. Uh, so whatever November looked like, we know already that December is going to be far, far weaker. So yeah. this is the start of a, a very uh, chilly winter season for the labor market in general. Uh, and also for the economy. I don't see holiday cheer in this report, that's to be sure. Yeah, one of the really disconcerting aspects of it is, you know, the really bad news in the unemployment is for those 27 weeks or longer, that rose to 3.94 million people. And the average uh, duration in weeks is now at 23.2. So it really goes to the issue, Carl, a lot of this unemployment, which maybe we initially thought might be temporary at the beginning of the pandemic, is looking more and more permanent, and that raises some some big issues. Well, I do think that that much of that unemployment is going to be temporary, but the temporary spell is going to last a lot longer. It's going to last until basically the spring thaw, until we've had a, a reopening of the economy and broad distribution of a vaccine. 
the alarming number there is that 26-week threshold because as unemployed individuals start to approach the 26-week mark, uh, then they start to drop out of state unemployment benefits. So there have been some extensions and some special programs Although those are due to expire uh, for the most part uh, at the end of this year, unless they get additional fiscal support uh, from Congress and the uh, White House. So uh, there is a very real problem here that we're approaching an income cliff uh, as those who are out of work uh, are uh, facing the uh, expiration of benefits. And that will be a real drag on the economy at a time when really, as we look at our models, uh, it's consumer spending that is doing all of the heavy lifting for the economy. So, Carl, you know, we constantly have people on that are actually, you know, talking up the economy and and, and respected economists. I'm not just talking, you know, money managers or what have you who are looking at the market itself continuing to go up. But but very few people are actually sounding the alarm on a, an economic cliff. They're saying that the economy is bouncing back faster than we thought, that, yeah, there may be another short dip into recessionary territory, but really it's a K-shaped economy and it's only one part of the the labour force or the economy that will feel the worst of this. Are, do you agree with those sentiments? I, I think the, uh, the, the incessant rally in the equity market has created an inebriating haze over the economic outlook. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, the, the reality is here uh, that we are heading towards a second contraction in the economy. It could be starting in December. Uh, it most likely will be concentrated in the first quarter of the year. Uh, we are looking for a contraction. I know some other uh, big shops are looking for uh, economic contractions in the first quarter. So there's this optimism that, yes, a vaccine is coming. So eventually we'll be out of this, uh, this muck, this swoon. Uh, but uh, the real question for the, uh, the the more pressing question is how deep of a downturn we're going to have in the meantime while we wait for the vaccines to be broadly distributed, while we wait for uh, economic stimulus uh, to help the economy and also for just the general reopening to happen in the spring. If we're talking about a half a percentage point contraction in the first quarter, which is our current estimate, uh, that's manageable and we can muddle through. But if things go poorly and there's no guarantee that we'll have a perfect execution here, uh, you could have a much deeper contraction and that creates a whole additional slew of folks who can't pay rent and mortgages that are missed in the financial contraction and uh, corporate bankruptcies. So, Carl, <clears throat> we saw Jonathan Farrow just minutes ago with uh, Larry Kudlow trying to press uh, Mr. Kudlow on um, stimulus and kind of where are we in stimulus and what's the White House uh, perspective. Just from my listen, I didn't really get any sense that anything is imminent. What are you guys kind of discounting in your models as to the stimulus size, scope, and, and maybe timing? Well, the stimulus has to be put in place before the end of the year, or there's going to be a real problem with that household uh, finances, uh, especially those uh, of the unemployed. Uh, that, that's a big issue. But there's also uh, additional problems for uh, small businesses, which are the dominant engine of job growth. Uh, and also the issue that Larry Kudlow really didn't want to address uh, was aid for uh, states and municipalities. And, and it's easy to say, well, we should punish the blue states uh, because they have uh, underfunded pension plans and, and whatnot. Uh, nonetheless, the fact of the matter is uh, economic growth over the last several decades uh, is driven by urban centers, by cities, the New Yorks, the Bostons, the Los Angeles. Uh, those cities are, uh, are you know, we're moving towards a service sector, uh, service-dominated economy, and it's all happening in the cities, in the tech centers, San Francisco, for example. If we leave those cities out to dry, 
uh, and their transit systems are, are impaired and uh, other infrastructure issues are unresolved uh, and they can't fully reopen, that is absolutely going to impair the recovery uh, as well. So we have to be very careful that we're not too stingy with stimulus uh, and we pay the cost as we did back in 2009-2010 uh, in the next couple of years uh, by being too stingy and therefore uh, cramping uh, the extent, uh, the, the pace of the economic recovery. Very briefly, Carl, we're out of time, but if the incoming administration is much more inclined to do something like this, will they be able to get it through and quickly? Well, I'll answer that question on January 5th when we know the results of the uh, Georgia runoff election. <laughs> yeah. If we're looking at split Congress, then it's going to be a very stingy uh, stimulus I, yeah. I hear. Isn't that really something else, Carl? Thank you. A dose of reality there from Carl Riccadonna telling us that we're heading towards a second contraction. We just, we just are, and that this inebriating haze is the yep. market which keeps going higher, and we cannot let that impact what we think of the economic fundamentals, which are obvious, Paul. Yeah, they really are. And in the jobs data today kind of just uh, put a underline uh, to that issue. And, uh, you know, Carl's uh, analysis, you know, suggesting that we really, uh, the economy really needs fiscal stimulus before the end of this calendar year, uh, when some of these programs do are set to expire, it really goes to uh, kind of the timing challenge uh, for Congress and the White House. And the fact that economic growth is driven by urban centers really struck with me too. That's uh, what Carl said yep. there. And it's just so true. It's a, a geographic imperative as much as anything else. Well, now it is time to have a look at ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Investing. And there's so much chatter about ESG going on that we need to sort of orient ourselves within what part of this investment management area we are looking at. Let's bring in Christy Hill, who's Head of America's Asset Management and Global Head of ESG for PGM Real Estate, $182 billion in assets under management. So Christy, help us here. It's great to speak with you. Help us understand how you can be a real estate investor in the ESG space. What does that mean? Yeah, for for us in real estate and ESG, it really is about... um, I would say assessing the risks um, that we view through the through the ESG lens. So it's about thinking about climate change and understanding not just your you know your impacts or the impacts of sea level rise, but really thinking thoughtfully about all of the impacts of climate change, you know, physical, social, transitional, and understanding not only you know how they're going to impact you know, insurance markets and you know, how mass migration is going to be impacting our markets or how evolving regulatory involving um, environments are going to change our environment it's about understanding the impact on the real estate but also understanding the financial impact on the real estate um, so i think for us it's about trying to really intensely do um, due diligence to assess our risk and and make sure that we're being thoughtful in our approach so that we can devise strategies to mitigate it so, Christy, how have uh, you changed your investment process as you factor in ESG uh, elements into your analysis? You know, it's, it's constantly evolving, and the more we learn, um, the more that investment process evolves with it. So it's about making sure we're, you know, kind of a little bit to, to my comment before, making sure we're considering all of the, the, the proper factors and all of the appropriate risks up front. Um, so that we can not just quantify them um, prior to prior to making that investment, but so that we can allow that diligence to inform our strategy operationally moving forward. How has the pandemic changed how you look at investments and what you do? Yeah, I think um, 
The, the pandemic you know, has impacted. The one thing we've been able to see is that this pandemic has impacted um, different sectors very differently. Um, and we can see that there have been clear you know, winners and losers. So I think for us, um, it's, it's forced us to t- you know, take a step back and be thoughtful. The last thing that we want to do from an investment perspective is be reactionary. Um, so I think it's caused us to, to pause um, with the asset classes that we think are going to be more affected by this in the near term. Um, but it's also, you know, has a, it hasn't stopped us from pursuing investments um, where we think there's clarity and opportunity. So, Christy, you know, one of the uh, issues that people are thinking about as it relates to real estate uh, resulting from this pandemic is is the change in the work home dynamic, more people working from home, uh, suggesting that maybe the need for office space in the big towers and the urban centers is not what it was pre-pandemic. How are you guys thinking about that? Well, certainly the office of the future is um, topic du jour during COVID. And I think it's very much an example of Um, As cliche as this may sound, um, an example of COVID accelerating an already existing trend. Um, We've been talking about remote work dynamics um, for a long time as technology has enabled that. And certainly, you know, COVID now forcing everybody to be remote is really shining a a bright light on it. Um, I think it's a little too soon to say what that impact is going to be. I mean, you hear a lot of alternate alternate um, scenarios of you know, more 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 square footage with fewer people, less square footage altogether. Um, we certainly believe there is going to be demand for office um, long into the future. This is something we're looking into as a tenant as well as an owner. Um, but I think we're trying to be. Um, pragmatic in our approach. We know that there's going to be greater flexibility needed in the future, um, but certainly believe that that demand for, for office real estate is is not going away. So I presume you're everywhere, right, Christy? You're in, involved probably all over the world and in most United States, but are there geographies that you're considering being less bullish on now and, and others that you're considering, you know, moving into? Um, you know, for, from an ESG perspective, certainly my purview is global. From the asset management perspective, I'm very much focused in the U.S. But I don't think the, you know, when we think about ESG, the concept, you know, when we think about ESG and resiliency isn't necessarily about saying because there is a challenged area, we're not going to go there. It really is about making sure that if we identifying that challenge up front so that we can you know, identify a strategy to mitigate that challenge. And, and there may be places where that presents opportunity. So, Christy, has, has ESG, uh, you know, the, the growth of ESG in your analysis, has that caused you to, to either uh, maybe overweight a sector or underweight a sector? Has it really changed how you've actually put money to work? You know, ESG is something that we think is is applicable across all sectors, and we want to look at ESG factors, um, factors and risks um, across each sector. So, I don't think it's it's at this point it's nothing that or nothing has come out of it that said we're going to do this or we're not going to do this. It's about making sure we're we're applying um, kind of that that ESG filter equally across all of our asset classes to make sure that we have a strong ESG strategy despite sector, despite region. Christy Hill, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Christy Hill is the head of America's Asset Management and global head of ESG for PGIM 
real estate. Uh, they have about $182 billion uh, in assets under management. So uh, they certainly have a good feel for the real estate market. And it, of course, as you think about some of this commercial real estate, one of the big issues is uh, what will be retail footprints um, mm. for certain retailers, number one. Number two, what is the work dynamic going to be? What is the office dynamic going to look like going forward? Is as much real uh, square footage really needed? Well, it was a big, big week in the media world. Warner Brothers, one of the biggest media companies, one of the biggest uh, film and television studios, announced this week that it's going to release all of its 2021 films on HBO Max, its streaming service, the same day they hit theaters. This is a big, big change for the movie business. Let's get some details. We can do that with Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg Opinion Media Columnist. So, Tara, big news from Warner. What do you think their strategy is here? Well, you know, I think right now with theaters, still a lot of them being closed because of COVID, they're looking at next year and saying, yes, there's vaccines around the corner, but it's still too soon to really have any visibility. So you want people to see these movies that you spend a ton of money on. You want people to subscribe to HBO Max. So if you're AT&T and you're looking at that, you're thinking, well, I should just put the movies on HBO Max. And I I think that's a really smart decision. It's going to be painful for movie theaters because those that are open, I think a lot of people are probably just going to choose to watch from home if they have that option. And HBO Max costs $15 a month if you're getting a new movie every few weeks. I mean, that starts to look like a pretty good value. You know, it went from being really expensive to being kind of compelling. So I, I think what they're doing is smart, but it's just, it is going to be painful for the movie theater industry. And to be clear, these movies only stay on for a month, so you have a limited viewing window, let's say, and they're also in theaters at the, at the same time. The question, I think, Tara, is whether this is going to be a permanent move on the part of Warner Brothers or whether they will revert to having a, you know, a theatrical window first once vaccines are available to the whole world. Warner Brothers is saying that this is a unique one-year thing. I I just don't see it being that. I think even if they are planning it that way now, by this time next year, it's going to be pretty clear that streaming is the most important product. It's something they really have to keep pushing with, especially with all the competition they have from Disney, Netflix, and others. So I think by this time next year, we're going to be looking at this and saying, this is probably going to be permanent. Maybe it doesn't look exactly this way. Maybe they have to bend to theatrical windows a little bit to keep that relationship. But I just, I think... Uh, more and more people want to watch movies from home, and it would just be silly for these companies to ignore that. So, Tara, it seems to me, I'm not sure if they've released any of the economics here, but it seems to me they're going to, Warner is going to take a big financial hit here, at least in the near term. It seems like if they spend $100 million on a movie, okay, I pay 15 bucks through HBO Max, and my family can sit on a sofa and see it. But if I were taking a family of four to the theater, that'd be $50 in revenue as opposed to 15 what are they saying about the, the profitability impact for the strategy for next year? Well, they're avoiding saying too much of anything about it, but you're right. It's clear that they're going to lose a lot of money on this, but I think they see it as probably worth it. Uh, you know, it's very expensive to even just promote these movies and the box office really helps offset that. And that's how they make a lot of their money. But if you're putting it on a streaming service, it makes me wonder if you need to do so much promoting, if, if people kind of just get in the habit of knowing there's always going to be a new big movie on HBO Max. Maybe you don't need to spend as much. Maybe over time, this becomes a little bit more of a feasible, practical strategy. But for next year, certainly this is going to be very costly for the company. I just don't think that shareholders will be so worried about it because Disney is doing similar things. They're really prioritizing streaming, even though it is losing money. And I think it's just because people know over time the goal is get as many subscribers as you can 
increase engagement as much as you can, and then eventually the profits will follow. So it's kind of a long-term bet. Does it force other studios to do the same? AMC down 20% now in the last two days. Yeah, I think it's a shot across the bow at Disney especially. Um, I think that there's definitely something to being first here and first to something inevitable. Uh, So I think that other companies will have to do something similar. And a lot of them were moving in that direction in some ways. You know, Mulan went straight to Disney Plus for a $30 fee. Earlier this year, uh, Comcast shortened its um, NBC Universal window with AMC theaters. So I think the theaters probably kind of expected something like this, but it's still it's still painful, and, and there's not really much they can do right now. Yeah, it's just, you know, as uh, Vanius is pointing out, these uh, theater stocks have really been under pressure for a long time now, particularly with some of this most recent news. Is there any scenario? I'm just kind of wondering what the future is for theaters. Does every town need multiplexes? throughout town. I mean, what's the expectation? Is this kind of the the death knell, if you will, for, I guess, the theater footprint in this country as we know it now? Yeah, I think everyone kind of wants some sort of a decision made on that. Like, is this the end of theaters or, or are they going to be fine? And I think it's somewhere in the middle. Like, it's not so black and white. It's that theaters probably, we don't need 40,000 screens around the country, you know, 6,000 theaters. We don't need all of that. But a lot of people do like going to the movies. They probably don't go frequently enough to support the industry at the size of that and the amount of investment that these theater companies have put into their cinemas to upgrade them. So it was kind of a mistake over the years that theaters expanded as rapidly as they did. But I imagine there's always going to be theaters of some kind. There probably just won't be one in every city and they'll just be fewer and far between. But I think that's maybe the way that they survived. Next year is probably going to be a big downsizing for the industry where a lot of theaters that were closed because of the pandemic will probably be permanently closed because because of streaming. Tara, I also want to briefly ask you about another column that you wrote this week about President Trump's potential future. Where do you see it? There's a lot of speculation that there might be some uh, TV in the works. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's so fascinating, isn't it? You know, they, they're saying Trump is looking at doing some sort of streaming service, you know, a monthly subscription, a lot like Fox Nation kind of sticking it to Fox, his new enemy. And it's hard to know what's going to happen with that. But I think what we're definitely seeing is some pressure on Fox News because, you know, they were so aligned with Trump that with him telling his supporters now to ditch Fox and watch Newsmax or OAN or potentially some Trump TV service, that they need to kind of shift gears and figure out what their talking points are going to be. Um, but as I noted this week, Fox is kind of protected because of their affiliate deals that they have with companies like Comcast and Charter that were only recently renewed in those last multiple years. So they've kind of locked in their profits for now. But there's definitely this big like headline risk that people are looking and saying, wow, Fox has competition for kind of the first time and it's, and it's for real. Is there any sense, uh, Tara, we've got about 30 seconds left, that Fox is concerned about this? Are they seeing erosion in the ratings? They're saying a little bit. I mean, it's it's small in the grand scheme of things, but I think they've got to be concerned. You know, you can't ignore that. And they definitely have to think about, you know, what's their narrative now? We have a different president in office, different party. What what do they talk about now if they can't uh, talk about Trump? Well, if you think about half the voters paying, you know, somebody maybe $5 a month, that's a nice little monthly salary for anybody who who does that. So you have to, you know, you have to consider that too. Tara, thank you so much. Tara's columns are so well worth reading, so satisfying and thought-provoking. Tara LaChapelle is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering the business of entertainment and communications, as well as broader deals, of course. She used to write an M&A column for Bloomberg News.
Where are we at with the election lawsuits? Let's ask somebody who follows them really to a T. Justin Levitt is Professor of Law at Loyola Law School. And Justin, I hope that's correct. I hope you're as glued to all of this as the rest of us. I'm sure you are because it only happens every four years, right? What is the current status of all of the lawsuits? Well, there are some that are still lingering, but they're not going much of anywhere fast. Um, The courts have been pretty uniform across the board. They've granted some extremely minor procedural relief in the early going, but since then um, have pretty much rejected all of the claims that have been made um, uniformly and in multiple states. There are a few cases that are still left to sort of wheeze their way out, but that's the way most of them are going, is, is slowly and with a whimper. So, Professor, President Trump is also reportedly considering pardons for himself, maybe his children. Um, what kind of legal jeopardy could he face from these actions? Well, from the pardons themselves, uh, there's not much unless he dangled a bribe in order to produce these pardons. That's something that um, we received word that the Justice Department had actually been investigating uh, a few weeks ago. And um, that is not okay. So holding out the prospect of a pardon in in exchange for something of value is not okay. But beyond that, um, the president has extremely broad power to pardon for any federal criminal activity. Um, That runs up against two limits. One, it's generally acknowledged that the president can't pardon himself, uh, that you need to be pardoning somebody else and not yourself in order for it to be effective. And two, the president can't pardon individuals uh, of state criminal activity. Um, there are a number of state investigations that we know of, including uh, tax fraud and other business liability from before the president's time as president. Um, and he can't, as president, get himself or others out of any trouble they may have run into with the states. What is your prediction for how it goes once you know, the president-elect is in office and, and the current president is is not, even though Katie McEnany has just said that he's going to remain leader of the Republican Party. I mean, is it possible that after investigations and, you know, presumably criminal proceedings that, that a former president could actually go to prison? It's possible. It's exceedingly unlikely. There are reasons that it hasn't happened before. Um, of course, this president uh, has found pleasure in breaking a lot of norms, and it would be ironic if that were among the norms that he would have broken. Um, Look, in terms of federal liability, even if the president doesn't effectuate all of the pardons that he's claimed to, um, there's going to have to be a really hard call on the part of uh, the new administration about what sort of accountability to seek. Um, And We obviously have accountability through the criminal justice system, but that's not the only form of accountability we have. Um, And there are lots of reasons why, even if the facts justified it, a new administration might choose to pursue accountability in some other realm outside of criminal justice. So, Professor, it's been, I I think, speculated that President Trump's perhaps biggest legal liability after he leaves office is from the Southern District of New York. There's a number of investigations ongoing. Is that your reading as well? I think it's a combination of the Southern District and the New York Attorney General's office. Uh, So as mentioned, there are different political considerations and there are different legal considerations when it comes to 
the federal government holding somebody to account versus the state government. Um, I'll note that the New York Attorney General's office has already um, very publicly come down on the Trump Organization charity, uh, the Trump Foundation, um, and they have been looking into business dealings with the Trump Organization elsewhere as well. Um, so I think it's, it is certainly true that the activity uh, that might cause them the most concern is happening within the jurisdiction of the Southern District of New York. But there are state actors there as well who also see uh, at least some traces of facts they want to follow up to find out if there's been criminal wrongdoing. Professor, when this is all over and, you know, in our memories, I, I don't just mean the last four years, but also maybe the next eight or 12 years, will there be legal precedent that will have been created thanks to this period in time? Oh, no question. Um, But even more important, I think, there will have been political or normative precedent. Um, So some of the courts have issued uh, opinions on what it is the president can or cannot do. They include opinions on what it is the president must or must not turn over when investigative agencies ask, and all of that will be precedent for the future. Um, But I think even as important as that are... uh, informal rules about how we treat the office of the presidency and what uh, requires or demands a response from other elected officials. Um, And those I can see running one of two ways, either learning a lesson from the last four years that we like how we treated this and so should continue to treat further presidents who might break norms in a similar fashion, or something I actually suspect more likely, um, that we'll see a backlash that will realize that some of the ways in which norm-breaking has been not only tolerated but encouraged in this presidency are more destructive long-term to the health of the country, and that uh, will turn a page on this and, and sort of suggest, I would hope, never again. So, Professor, President Trump, I, I guess, has not conceded yet. What are the constitutional laws surrounding this transfer of power? Do we need him to technically concede? No, it's just that every president since the mid-19th century has. Um, So we're not used to a president who doesn't concede. But in short, the president's not in control of whether he acknowledges uh, a loss at all. Um, The state and local governments count up the ballots. That's something that we've seen over the last couple of weeks that a lot of Americans are now more attuned to than ever. Um, They announce final results. Governors or other executives of the state certify those results. The electors vote uh, on December 14th in the Electoral College. Congress counts the ballots. But you'll notice I haven't mentioned the president once in all of that. And that's because he's not in control of whether he remains as president or not. If he chooses to concede, if he chooses not to concede, either way around, the other actors in the system who count the ballots that have been cast decide whether on January 20th at 1201, Uh, President-elect Joe Biden will be sworn in. He will be. And if the president hasn't conceded by 1201, um, then he better find a new address because at 1201, (laughs) the Secret Service will establish the rule of the president-elect and anybody who's not that person will be kindly asked to leave the White House. Very interesting. We will follow that clearly, of course. Justin Levitt, professor of law at the Loyola Law School. Thank you so much for joining us based in Los Angeles. So again, Vani, the next uh, six weeks here, uh, be interesting to see, uh, you know, President-elect uh, Biden continues to build out his cabinet and prepare for the transfer of power. So we will obviously watch that. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.